Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 27th, 2012. This is going to be an interesting program. In fact, I feel like I've been working on it all day. And I have. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Listen, all of us, every single one of us, we are all sinners. As a result of it, because of our corrupted, sinful nature— we are naturally prone to all kinds of crazy and terrible, bad, egregious sins. And I'm not talking necessarily about sins of the flesh. I'm talking primarily about breaking that first commandment, having no other gods except the one true God. We oftentimes build gods in our own image or we believe falsely about God, regardless of the fact that God's word confronts us with our false beliefs. What we do with the Bible in situations like that, well, oftentimes we reinterpret it. Um, we ignore those passages. We just pretend like they don't exist. Or we come up with some clever system whereby we can redefine all the all the words in there so they don't mean what they say. In fact, uh, you know, <laughs> the more clever you get with this, uh, what you can literally do is take a biblical text and through some bizarre form of deconstructive transmogrification, turn it into a text that says that means the opposite of the actual words that it says. This is bad stuff. This is this is es no bueno. It's really bad. Um, local cocktail, uh, you know, so which you don't want to be doing this. Instead, when God's word uh, contradicts you, you as a Christian. Now, I'm not at the moment. I'm not talking to the world out there. As a Christian who has been brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we have God the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We are regenerated, raised from the dead spiritually. We, um, as a result of that, uh, the sanctifying work of the Spirit includes curbing. Uh, appetites that come as a result of our sinful flesh and 
bringing into submission all thoughts that would raise themselves against what God has revealed. So the the idea is is that when you're confronted with something you don't believe, you're not supposed to sit there and go, well, I don't believe that. You're supposed to go, hmm, man, okay, I need to repent. I've believed falsely, or in some cases, not only have you believed falsely, you've taught falsely, you've passed along bad information. And so the idea of this program is we collectively stop, pause, you know, listen to what people are saying, and then open up the scriptures and see if that's what it says. And I am not exempt from this exercise. And the reason why I'm not is because this side of Christ's return, this side of the resurrection, um, I still have my own sinful flesh that I have to deal with. And oftentimes I find my own false beliefs or ideas in scripture, well, uh, being confronted by the scripture. You, you understand what I'm saying? So now at the opening of the program, I assured you that today's edition of Fighting for the Faith was going to be interesting. It is absolutely positively going to be interesting. Now, what we're going to do today, we got three segments that we're going to do. No clue what how the time is going to work out. In fact, I'm I'm guessing I'm probably going to run long in the first hour. In fact, you, it, you, it's going to be like the first hour-ish because of the amount of space that I want to cover. But um, those of you who follow Mark Driscoll or are aware of what he's up to, um, he's currently preaching through the book of Esther. And the, the sermon that he preached this past Sunday actually was a fairly decent sermon. Um, and what I found interesting in it is that as I was listening to him um, basically go on about uh, King Asuerus, uh, Artaxerxes, um, if I found myself asking the question, does Mark Driscoll not preach to himself? Does he not preach to himself? Because there are some things that he said in this sermon that were, I mean, just spot on, right on target. And in fact, uh, you know, the, basically, the, he's in Esther chapter one, or at least he was on Sunday, preaching through the the um, the uh, the incident that occurred at the great party that lasted for six months, uh, where uh, the king of Babylon uh, instructed his wife to come and parade herself before his drunken friends, um, and Queen Vashti said, "Go pound sand." And uh, and so, in fact, Driscoll does a fantastic job of making sure not to moralize the story and point out the fact that this points us to our true king, Jesus, that all, all the kings of humanity, all the kings of the earth, you know, ultimately will fail. And and, and so he asks some very – he makes some great parallel uh, <clears throat> uh, points between – uh, King Asuerus and uh, and Jesus Christ at the tail end of the sermon. But the things that he said, I just had to stop and, again, ask the question, does Mark Driscoll not preach to himself? So our first segment today is a Mark Driscoll segment. And what you're going to hear, um, you're going to pretty much say, yeah, that's pretty good preaching. But you're also, like me, going to, at the end of this, be asking the question, does Mark Driscoll not preached to himself. Based on what he said on this past Sunday, I think Mark Driscoll has some public apologizing and public repenting to do in light of the biblical truth that he brought forward on Sunday. I'll, I'll explain that as we go along. Then when we're done with that, we'll take a break. No clue how long that will take. 
Um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to be – I'm going to be doing not a full-blown review but uh, kind of a partial review of Donald Trump's convocation speech at Liberty University. He – I don't know if it was this week or last week but uh, – he he made some statements that are that obviously are you know making the rounds and people are critiquing him and then what I want to do is put them into back into a little bit of context so that you understand where Donald Trump was coming from and Donald Trump you know at this convocation flat out claimed that he's a Christian that he was raised Presbyterian uh, that when he was growing up he loved Sunday school um, and um, and so you know he he made some interesting comments. Along those lines, but I'm, I would like to offer a theological and doctrinal corrective to the things that Donald Trump said, because I think Donald Trump is missing a major component of his understanding of what Christians are called to do in vocation. And as a result of it, he said some things that, I mean, flat out contradicted Jesus, which is like very scary ground to be on. But I want you to hear them in context rather than doing sound, uh, you know, soundbite. I want to put it back into context and offer a biblical corrective. Then what we'll do is we'll take our second break, however long we go. I have no idea. And then we're going to uh, be going to uh, Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, and reviewing a sermon entitled... Dream Maker, what's stopping you? And uh, and funny enough, all of these things uh, fit together for today's theme for Fighting for the Faith, which I'm not going to state uh, publicly, but see if you can figure out what the theme for today's uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith is. So with that, I, I strongly recommend make yourself comfortable. If you're working out on uh, exercise equipment or a treadmill, make sure that you take all the proper safety uh, precautions, you know, things like that. Not because necessarily you're going to hear you know, bizarre Patricia King-ish kind of statements, but you're going to hear some statements today that are going to, that could, well, it maybe won't, but could cause your head to, you know, spin rapidly and you, and you could get whiplash. So, you know, take some, you know, safety precautions because some of the things you're going to hear, you're just going to go, what? Yeah, it's kind of that kind of day. So, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Since we're doing a Mark Driscoll update, I uh, find it necessary to use our Mark Driscoll update music. Um, here's Living Colors' Cult of Personality. Colors, Cult of Personality, which I think fits uh, Mark Driscoll whenever we do an update for him. Okay, so like I said at the uh, you know at the opening of the program when we were talking about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, Mark Driscoll is preaching currently through the Book of Esther. Um, I'm waiting to see if um, he's taken the corrective. 
that many people have offered because he, he, he let me put it this way he recently talked about um uh what he was going to preach about on his blog and uh and there are some things that he says about Esther that just cannot be supported from the biblical text. And as a result of it, he's received a little bit of a of a blogosphere pummeling for uh, basically eisegeting things into the book of Esther regarding Esther. So I'm curious to see if he's going to actually preach those details regarding Esther when it comes time to actually you know, uh, discuss her in the sermon series. He hasn't gotten to her yet. But uh, the uh, the name of the sermon from this past Sunday is entitled, Jesus Has a Better Kingdom. And got to tell you, fairly decent sermon. There were some great things that, um, that Mark Driscoll brought out. He brought them out passionately, brought them out education, educatedly. And, uh, and, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just go ahead and start playing it but uh, before we uh, before the end of this segment, you're going to realize you there is a problem, and yeah, I, we'll explain it as we get there. But here's Mark Driscoll from this past Sunday, his sermon entitled "Jesus Has a Better Kingdom." The story continues. <laughs> then uh, Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king is Queen Vashti done wrong. Oh, it's much worse than that. This has now been tweeted. And it's, it's really, it's trending. It's trending. In the Hebrew. But also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the providences of King Ahasuerus. This is a crisis. When she told you no, all of a sudden, a lot of women realized, that's a good word. A little bit powerful. No. They've been practicing it all day at home, waiting for their husband to return from work. No, no, no. The women are all practicing. We have the makings of an outbreak. This is an epidemic. Next thing you know, fools won't get their way. Oh, what will we do? For the queen's behavior, verse 17, will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. (laughs) Can you see this? These very powerful men. Well, you know, King, if we don't do something, we're all jerks like you. And our wives are all frustrated like yours. And if yours tells you to stuff it, ours are going to tell us to stuff it. This is now a crisis. You see the comedy? What happens is sometimes rulers, kings, those in power, those in authority, those who are rich and famous, they take themselves so seriously, but they're silly. They're silly. This is silly. What's going to happen? Is Vashti going to back down? I'm sorry. I apologize. Let me send out a press release. Okay, ladies, we'll all do what we're told. Is she going to hold to her guns? Well, let's read. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath aplenty. Anytime men have to impose respect on women, just goes to show that the men aren't respectable. Men, let me say this at your house. 
if you have to keep pulling out all the obey me verses, maybe she just doesn't respect you because you're not respectable. There are, there are easier ways to deal with these sorts of situations. Here's something that Xerxes never does. Repent. Let me ask you this. Is Xerxes right or wrong? Let me just set this up so it's an easy vote for us. To request that his wife parade underdressed or undressed in front of maybe 50 or 100,000 drunk guys. You think that was a good or a bad request by the great King Xerxes? Oh, and he made that decision while drunk. We all agree, right? We took a vote right now. You'd say, bad decision. So what should he do? Apologize. Sweetheart, I'm sorry. I was drunk. I shouldn't have been drunk. I was with the guys. I should have been with those guys. They all started doing the wave. Get Queen Vashti. Next thing I know, got ourselves a little Persian wave going on. And out of fear of man and cowardice, I asked you to come and to parade before the drunken soldiers. And I'm sorry, that was wrong. Please forgive me. It would have been over, right? Would it have been over? Probably so. Instead, he remains unrepentant. Okay, now, again, we read the story, and what we need to do is continually ask ourselves, how am I like Xerxes? How am I self-righteous? How am I stubborn? How do I want the world to rotate around me? Where am I trying to put my throne? What kingdom am I trying to build? Um, in what ways am I foolish? And in where, where in my life, rather, am I unrepentant? Let me say this. When we're wrong, we should repent. It doesn't matter if you're more powerful. You should repent. Now, I'm going to pause here. I haven't interrupted him because you know he's making a decent point. When you're wrong, you should repent. doesn't matter if you're King uh, Xerxes or whoever, a seeker-driven vision-casting pastor, maybe. Um, when you're wrong, you need to repent. He's making a good point. I'm not disagreeing with, with what he's saying at, at this point. Some of his contextualization of the book of Esther here is a little screwy, but... Um, aside from that, I mean, he's making some pretty decent points. It doesn't matter if you're more powerful. You should repent. It doesn't matter if you're the boss. You should repent to the employees. It doesn't matter if you're the husband. You should repent to the wife. It doesn't matter if you're the parent. You should repent to the kids. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor. You should repent to the congregation. It just doesn't matter if you're the president. You should. If you're the pastor, you should repent to the congregation. That, again, listen to what he said if you're the pastor, you should repent to the congregation. I'll circle back on this point in a, in a minute, but I want him to keep talking what he's talking because he's making a good, decent, biblical point. You should repent to the voters. If you're in charge, it doesn't mean you're right. That's correct. If you're in charge, it doesn't mean you're right. Again, great point. So I'm going to ask the question again. Does... Mark Driscoll not preach to himself. Let's let this unfold a little bit more. Is demonstrating repentance. 
Repentance is where we acknowledge, I'm just wrong. I could make a lot of excuses, reasons. I could get a whole bunch of people together. I could get a bunch of people who agree with me and think like me, and some of them are highly educated and have degrees, and I could quote books, and we could bring in a professional. We could write things down. We could make it look very official, but at the end of the day, I just have a hard heart. Yep. Is that you, friend? I'll tell you, at times in my life, it's been me. Yep. So have you publicly repented? Now, this is the part where I bring in uh, Mark Driscoll's previous statements. Mark Driscoll is one of these guys who, in the seeker-driven movement, believes that his job as the leader of Mars Hill is to cast vision. And anybody who doesn't get on board with his vision is thrown under the bus. Here's uh, Mark Driscoll from a few years ago. Here's what I've learned. You, you cast vision for your mission, and if people don't sign up, you move on. Now, this is him uh, talking to other pastors within the resurgence, uh, you know, uh, Acts 29 network. You move on. There are people that are going to die in the wilderness, and there are people that are going to take the hill. That's just how it is. Um, too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. Um, I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Now, I'm going to stop here and just ask the tough question. Where in the Bible does it tell pastors to do this? To, number one, cast vision. Number two, run the bus over people who don't get on board with the so-called vision. Nowhere. Vision casting is nowhere taught in Scripture. It's not part of the pastoral office, period. They don't have the authority to cast vision. Now, I'm going to point something out also here, uh, maybe a point that I've made in the past, and that's this, that there are clear guidelines in Scripture as to who or whom is to be disciplined um, by the church, by pastors, okay? Who is it that is supposed to be brought under discipline and experience excommunication or disfellowshipping? Okay, the, the, the Bible's clear on this, okay? People who are unrepentant sinners, somebody who's been confronted with their sin, who says, go pound sand, and they are brought, the church comes back and says, no, you need to repent, otherwise we're going to put you out of the fellowship, and their response is, go pound sand, I'm not going to repent. That is a person who is to be excommunicated, put out of the church, Okay. Other people who are to be excommunicated or disciplined, uh, brought under church discipline, are those who are teaching rank heresy, who are teaching doctrines contrary to what the, to what the church has received in God's word. Plain and simple. Somebody comes along like Patricia King, the job of the church actually is to excommunicate, throw that person out as a heretic and call them to repent of their false doctrine and be forgiven. That's the idea. There is no category 
in the Bible of church discipline that comes to somebody who refuses to get on board with the pastor's, quote, vision for the church. This is a new category. And Mark Driscoll here, teaching other pastors, has told them to throw people under the bus. There's a pile of bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And by the grace of God, it's going to be a mountain before we're done. People who are, they're basically being disfellowshipped, excommunicated, thrown under the bus and disciplined, not because they are in unrepentant sin, not because they are teaching false doctrine, but because they're not on board with the vision of the pastor. That's not biblical. You will look all throughout Scripture, you could start in the book of Genesis, continue all the way to the book of Maps at the back of your Bible, and you will not find any passages whatsoever that, number one, teach that the pastor has the authority to um, cast vision for his unique congregation. That's not nowhere taught. It's not a biblical practice. Nor will you find any passages that say that those who disagree with the vision of the pastor are to be excommunicated, disciplined, thrown under the bus, disfellowshipped. No, th- th- these, this doesn't exist. So Mark Driscoll has abused his power. I have spoken with many of the people who've been thrown off the Mars Hill bus because they've reached out to me. And not one of them has struck me as either being an unrepentant sinner or a rank heretic or somebody who denies the Christian faith. Each and every one of them, when you listen to their stories, they have been wrongfully disciplined, wrongfully excommunicated, wrongfully disfellowshipped, wrongfully discipline it there is no excuse for what has happened to them there is not one biblical ounce of authority given to mars hill and mark driscoll to do what they did to them and yet they've done it i'm not hearing mark driscoll repenting of this position i have not i have yet to hear him say you know what the whole vision casting thing it's not biblical what i did to those people is wrong i am repenting and i've contacted them personally to apologize for what I've done to them. He hasn't done that. Instead, these people are still waiting their apology. These people are still waiting for him to publicly repent of his false doctrine and teaching regarding vision casting. Let me play a little bit more. But the bus ain't going to stop. And uh, I'm I'm just a guy who is like, look, we love you, but this is what we're doing. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus, they got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus, they got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There are people who will uh, be on the bus, leaders and helpers and servants, they're awesome. There's also just sometimes nice people who sit on the bus and shut up. Um, they're not helping or hurting, just let them ride along. Um, you know what I'm saying? But don't look at the nice people that are just going to sit on the bus and shut their mouth and think, I need you to lead the mission. They're never going to. At the very most, you'll give them a job to do and they'll serve somewhere and help out in a minimal way. If someone can sit in a place that hasn't been on mission for a really long time, they are by definition not a leader. And so they're never going to lead. Uh, You need to gather a whole new core. I'll tell you guys what, too. You don't do this just from your church planting or replanting. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. 
We just took certain guys and rearranged the seats on the bus. Yesterday, we fired two elders for the first time in the history of Mars Hill last night. They're off the bus, under the bus. Um, they were off- and neither one of them was in unrepentant sin. Neither one of them has, was teaching false doctrine or heresy. They're off mission, so now they're unemployed. I mean, No, they were off mission. They disagreed or found themselves uh, you know, not in accord with the expectations of the vision that Mark Driscoll has apparently received directly from God. You, this will be the defining issue as to whether or not you succeed or fail. So, okay, now I bring all that back up yeah, because here Mark Driscoll in this past Sunday sermon is preaching against abuse of power, right? Uh, you know, Xerxes' abuse of power, requ- you know, making a, basically an immoral request of his wife Vashti and her right to refuse. And he's making the point that, hey, you know, listen. If you're even if you're the pastor and you're wrong, you need to repent. So I'm saying it here, Mark Driscoll, you're wrong. What you've done in practicing this false methodology called vision casting and throwing people under the bus, this is nowhere taught in Scripture. You don't have this authority. You do not have the authority to do this unless the people you've thrown under the bus were people who were in rank unrepentant sin. Or we're teaching false doctrine. There is no category for vision casting as far as the authority given to a pastor. You don't have it. It is a false authority. And what you've done is wrong. And you have literally, literally crushed under your bus people who were guilty of doing nothing wrong. Now, I'm going to play a little bit more from the end of the sermon. Because Driscoll makes a point that I think is worth bringing up at this point. A good one at that, where he starts comparing Xerxes to Jesus. And he says something very interesting about Jesus that I would like to remind him in this context regarding the people he's abused and crushed who've done nothing, nothing wrong. Where is a king? And he's high and exalted. And he's ruling, seated on a throne. And he does something that Xerxes never did. He got off his throne. And he came down to this confused, fallen, flawed, failed world. Now he's talking about Jesus, the, the King of Kings, coming down to us. World, And he came not to take, but to give. He came not to enslave us, but to free us. And so the story of Esther falls within the storyline of the scriptures that's all about Jesus. He's right. And if we don't allow Jesus to come into the story through the themes of king and kingdom, all we're left with is moralism. Xerxes was a bad guy. Esther was a good girl. Be like Esther, not like Xerxes. That's not enough. The Bible's not just good news for what we can do. It's, it's good news for what God has done. And so the, the heart's cry here is, there has to be a better kingdom. There has to be a better king. Xerxes sat on his throne feeding sin. And our King Jesus got off his throne to forgive sin. Amen? Amen. To give us a new nature. Amen? Amen. King Xerxes' words are no longer read and obeyed. But King Jesus' words will forever be read and obeyed. Amen? Amen. Xerxes gave people what they want. King Jesus gives people what they need. Amen? Xerxes banished his people from his presence. 
King Jesus never banishes any of his people from his presence. Amen? Amen. Xerxes banished people from his presence. King Jesus never banishes people from his presence. Who does Mark Driscoll think he's fooling? Let me again remind you of Mark Driscoll acting like King Xerxes, banishing from his presence certain people who've done no nothing wrong, committed no sin. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. So Mark Driscoll, uh, in this whole vision-casting leader model, is uh, King Xerxes. Casting people from the presence of Christ because they're not on board with or in accord with the way he expects them to, the vision that he has for the church. Who's king in this, in this model? Not Jesus. Because he's, he's not in accord with the, with the vision that Jesus cast. He's got his own vision. And you're either on board or you're under the bus and we're going to run you over. So here you got it. Um, Mark Driscoll preaching against the tendencies of abuse of power like Xerxes did, and yet he's guilty of the same thing. And he says the solution, this is what he said in the sermon, the solution is repentance. And so, Mark, I'm going to call you out. Will you repent publicly for what you've done to these people, casting them from your presence, which, by the way, the way that it's gone down when you talk to these people, they feel like Jesus was the one who kicked them in the teeth because of you, the way you mishandled them, the way you abused them. And yet you turn around and say, Jesus doesn't cast anyone from his presence. Yet by kicking them out of their church for doing nothing wrong, they feel like Jesus himself has cast them from their presence. Are you going to repent publicly or not? That's the question. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So get busy and amuse those goats. Don't be lazy. You're here to satisfy the leader's God-given vision supreme. 
If you dare to question him, well, there'd certainly be a scene. Look out. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, he's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus. to invite you to register for the free Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally coming to the following cities the fall of 2012. These are one night and they're free, but you must register online at worldviewweekend.com. We're going to start out October 7th in Destin, Florida. Then we're on to Wichita, Kansas, Des Moines, Iowa, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rogers, Arkansas, Peoria, Illinois, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Rockford, Illinois. They're free, they're one night, and it's the Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. That's worldviewweekend.com. Please post this on your Facebook, put it out to your email address book. Help us get out the word about these free fall 2012 Biblical Worldview Weekend Rallies. Speakers will include myself, Brandon House, along with Justin Peters, Mike Gendron, Jimmy D. Young, and a few others. Don't miss out on the fall Worldview Weekend rallies coming to these cities. Full details at worldviewweekend.com.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if you have a pastor who believes that he has the authority to cast vision, that's nowhere found in the Bible. Your pastor is in sin and needs to repent. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month, that's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. This is the theme for The Apprentice. It's our first ever Donald Trump update. Yeah, that's uh, to our first ever uh, Donald Trump update. Now, normally Donald Trump does not fit within the um, the, you know, the spectrum of things that we talk about here at Fighting for the Faith. However, he uh, just this past week was the uh, convocation speaker at Liberty University. He was the guest of uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., I think, and um, and this is the very first time I've ever heard Donald Trump. Speak about religion or in in a religious setting or context, and uh, and talk about his faith. Now, in in the convocation, 
he said a few things about his Christian faith that I need to front load with. So I'm going to play the sound bites here first so you kind of get the context. And then what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a long segment in order to um, get to some of the things that he said that I think are missing the entire point of Christian sanctification in some places where he runs afoul of the very teachings of Jesus himself. So here's Donald Trump stating some things about his Christian faith. When I got a call from Liberty, I said, you know, I was confirmed at First Presbyterian Church, Jamaica, Queens. You don't know where Queens is. It's in New York. First Presbyterian. And I said, do you have that certificate? And do you have that picture? Are they going to put it up? Because I actually sent it. But, ah. I was a brat. I was a terrible brat, actually. But, you know, I used to love going to Sunday school. People don't know this about Trump. They think, oh, Trump, you know, Trump. But the truth is, I went to Sunday school. And I loved going to Sunday school. And I did for years. And First Presbyterian Church, which is one of the oldest in the country, was just a great place. And I learned a lot. And I learned about God. And that was probably the greatest thing I've ever learned. Forget all the business stuff. All right. So that's kind of the setup there. Now, later in his convocation speech, he does say something else about his faith. And I want to put that in here so that uh, we can at least have it in the records before we review some things. Because if, you, if you're familiar with the, the controversy regarding what he said, we'll cover it. But I, I'm, I'm going to try to offer – this is going to sound ridiculous. I'm going to try to offer Donald Trump a, a corrective, if he would, to let him know why what he said was controversial and runs afoul of the teachings of Jesus. It's because the focus is, is wrong. It's actually – uh, 180 degrees focused in the wrong direction. And I'll explain that by going back through what he said and and showing you how when it comes to Christian sanctification and his particular approach to business, um, there's, there's – the, well, there's an important a focal point that is not being focused on. But anyway, let me play that next soundbite so that you can hear Donald Trump. Again, I, I can't recall an, a, a, a different time where Trump – openly talked about his faith. So let's get this other bite in here so you at least understand where he's coming from. But, you know, I really wanted to be here because I've heard so much about Liberty University, especially being Presbyterian, being a Christian and a very proud Christian. And a real Christian. People are going to say, gee, I wonder what he meant by that. So he's a Presbyterian and he's a real Christian. All right, so that's Trump on Trump's faith talking about, you know, you know what he's all about. Now, we're now going to listen to a long segment, and I've put together a couple of different pieces, and I'll comment along the way. Because at the convocation, he said some stuff uh, toward the end of his uh, lecture that you, um, yeah, it, I mean, talking about revenge and the importance of prenuptial ag- agreements and things like that, that just you, make you go, whoa, 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 whoa. So you're a Christian and you're truly a Christian. 
All right, we need to uh, maybe uh, lovingly um, recommend that Brother Trump spend some more time in the scriptures because um, sanctification-wise, there's some um, components that are, are missing and actually running afoul of what Christ has taught and what God has revealed in his word. So with that, here's Donald Trump. Um, talking about the importance of success. And, and by the way, that's kind of the, the uh, when you look at, in fact, if you want to see this, if you want to see this, go to youtube.com forward slash Liberty University, all one word, forward slash Liberty University. Browse their uh, the uh, Liberty University YouTube channel and you will easily find Donald Trump's uh, convocation speech uh, that he recently delivered. And the, when you look at how he was introduced, the, the justification for this is that Liberty University supposedly has a mission for creating Christian champions or Christian winners. And so that's the context for which Trump was invited to address the Christian kids at Liberty University. So th- this is Trump talking about success. Do you guys want to be successful or don't you care? Okay, Okay, you better believe it. So let's talk about it, okay? All right? All right, yeah, let's talk about success. That's what he's there for. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to get out of Brooklyn. I said, Pop, I love you, but I want to get out of Brooklyn. I love Brooklyn, but I want to get out. And I love those buildings. You know, I look from Queens and Brooklyn, and I'd see those big buildings, those big skyscrapers in Manhattan. I said, Pop... That's what I want to do. That's what I wanted to do. And lots of things can happen. I mean, I'll give you one story. Um, About eight years ago, I was approached by NBC and Mark Burnett to do a show that they had entitled The Apprentice. Now, I had an agent, a big, big, big agent, and he was a great agent. But I shook Mark Burnett's hand, and NBC was dying to do it, and they said, we'd only do it if you do it, Trump. You're the only one we want, nobody else. So I was honored, and I said, you know, okay, I'm going to do it. I knew nothing about television, nothing. So my agent calls me. I heard you accepted doing The Apprentice. I won't let you do it. I said, I said, you're fired. Uh, He's worse than me. I did say that, but I waited a little while. Okay, you're tough. So Jim said, Donald, in the history of television, there's never been a primetime show about business or what you're trying to do that succeeded. I said, I wish you told me that. Then he said, and only 3% of the shows that go on television make it. So in other words, you're probably going to have a failure anyway, but you'll definitely have a failure. I'm your agent. I do not want you to do this show. So I said, you know, Jim, I have a problem. I shook the hand of NBC, and I shook the hand of Mark Burnett, who also is known for having done The Survivor, which is another great one. I think Apprentice is better, but these are minor details. I said, I shook the hand. He said, doesn't matter. You can't do it. I said, I have to do it. Anyway, time goes by. We do the show. It goes on. It starts at number 10. It goes to 8. It goes to 5 and 4. It then goes to number 2 in the following week. It's the number one show on television. And I knew it was good because I didn't know what the word rating meant. I didn't know, is that good or bad? But I knew it was good because the chairman of NBC called me. It was my birthday. And it was 7 in the morning. And he called. 
He said, Donald, I just wanted to wish you a happy birthday. Now, to me, as an instinctive businessman, that means we're doing okay, right? My wife said, who was that? I said, that was the chairman of NBC. He wanted to wish me a happy. She said, darling, it's like 6.30 in the morning. So we went out, and I get a call from the agent, and he calls me also. But his call was like at 8. He said, Donald, congratulations. I'd like to see you. I said, Jim, what do you want to see me about? He said, well, your show just hit number one, and if you don't mind, I think I'm entitled to a very substantial commission. Oh, he's worse than a real estate broker, Jerry. So I said, how much do you think you're entitled to? Well, how about two or three million dollars? I said, Jim, you're fired. And that was it. That was it. Okay, so he's there to help motivate the Christian champions at Liberty University. He's regaling us with his personal stories. Now, somebody who's as well known as Trump, of course, him talking about himself, you know, doesn't seem out of place. But remember the context. This is a Christian university that's supposed to be instilling in its people Christian values in the sense that um, you know, they're supposed to be embracing Christian sanctification. Now, I'm, I'm going to kind of lay the cards out here and let you know where Trump, where his focus is really on the wrong target, okay? And what I mean is this, is that when it comes to vocation, each and every one of us has a vocation, okay? In fact, many of us have multiple vocations, okay? God has put you in the vocation of father, mother, husband, wife, okay? You can be an employer. You can be an employee. Uh, you can be a son, a daughter. Uh, you, you get what I'm saying? There's, so the idea is, is that these are the thing, these are the vocations that God has put us in, and this is where we as Christians do our good works, okay? And then the focus then of our Christian wor- good works it's our neighbor. Okay. Now I'm going to bring some biblical passages to bear here because I think it will help as we kind of unpack this, this idea of where Trump, he's, he's not focused correctly. Uh, As a result of it, he's saying things as a true Christian that are not in accord with what Christ has taught and what is, what scripture has revealed. Okay. Let me, let me throw in some, some passages here that'll help. Ephesians chapter 2, let me read verses 8, 9, and 10, okay? For it is by grace you have been saved. And that means saved from the wrath of God. You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This salvation, this faith, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast, Okay. Now, what I think is interesting here is that in the same breath that the Apostle Paul, you know, writes, you are saved by grace through faith. He then says this, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. So on, on the one hand, he affirms Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, and we are saved to good works. Oddly enough, he does the same thing. The Apostle Paul does the same thing 
in the book of Galatians. And you're going, really? He does that in the book of Galatians? Yes, he does. And remember, the the occasion for the writing of the book of Galatians was that the Galatian churches had slipped into a false gospel and were basically saying, you're not saved unless you do X, Y, and Z. Follow these particular rules, have this particular procedure you guys done to your private member, and and, and only then you know, do you have a chance of being saved, right? You have to, So they're mixing works with salvation by grace. Now, which again, so what's a good work? A good work is anything God has commanded you to do and you do it. A sin is anything God has commanded you to do and you don't do it. That's pretty basic. But in Galatians chapter 5, let me do a little bit of reading here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, I'm going to show you. Paul does the same thing that he does in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 8, 9, and 10. Uh, he talks about salvation by grace alone through faith alone and then talks about doing good works. But he does something very interesting in this passage that's worth conveying. Galatians 5, tail end of this fantastic epistle that correctly explains to us how to understand God's law and the gospel. Paul writes, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, right? And that's slavery to the law, okay? And then let me read a little bit more so we keep our context. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified or declared righteous by the law. You have fallen from grace, though for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await uh, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view uh, than the one, uh, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been re- removed. I wish those who unsettle you, teaching false doctrine, I wish they would emasculate themselves. That's what the Apostle Paul says right there. Paul didn't mince words. Those people who are preaching salvation by works and by salvation by circumcision, Paul wishes that they would have the lopidophamy uh, procedure done to them, right? Now, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, the English misses the point of the Greek. The Greek just says this so much better. Let me read it. Let me just point out the important word and I'll I'll, I'll change it, okay? The important word, by the way, serve, yeah, it's not strong enough. The, the Greek there is slave, doulos, Okay. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, slave for one another. Be one another's slaves. You're going, whoa, that sounds contradictory. Yes, it does. But see, that's the whole point of Christian sanctification. We are set free to slave for our neighbors. In other words, really, truly serve them. Not by way of basically them saying, here, bellboy, come over here and get me a, get me a new uh, umbrella drink, will you? No, no, no. You slave for them in the sense that you're now, you, you now slave for them, giving them what they need. 
loving and serving your neighbor in vocation. And so all of Christian good works are done with this idea. Christ has set us free from the law and set us free so that we can be slaves for our neighbor. I know it sounds crazy, but that's exactly the whole point. So you and I are set free to be servants to, to be slaves to, to love and serve our neighbor. Okay? And so the idea is is that in Christian vocation, if you decide to go into business, by the way, I have a master's degree in business administration from Pepperdine. So I understand business. I've spent a lot of time in the business world. Okay. And I've seen a lot of people uh, who call themselves Christians who are off focus. Here's the reason why. When you talk about such things as success or winning and things like that, who's the focus on? not serving your neighbor and not slaving for your neighbor, as Paul says here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. No, they're not slaving for their neighbor. They're slaving for themselves. Success, the way Trump here is preaching it, is success that focuses on results that benefit me, that are for me, winning for me, not slaving for neighbor. And see, by the way, that's not, according to scripture, according to Christ, that's not what it means to lose. That's exactly what it means to win. Okay. Let me read a, let me read a a biblical passage here. Matthew chapter 20. I'll start at verse 20. The mothers of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. (laughs) Nice piety there. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say to these two sons of mine, uh, say, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, the other at your left, and in your kingdom. Jesus answered them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They said to him, yeah, we're able to drink it. He said to them, will you drink my cup? But uh, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them and said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your slave, your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, for we are now God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And Paul in Galatians of all places, places, Galatians chapter five, verse 13 says, you were called to freedom, brothers, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, slave for one another. So that's where um, Trump here is going wrong. Now, let me read to you some just great stuff from uh, the book of Ephesians as well that kind of lays out for you what this looks like. Slaving for one another. We are set free. We are totally set free in Christ to be slaves. 
Strange concept, but this is what Scripture teaches regarding good works and sanctification. Now this I say to you, this is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul writes, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, do not sin, and be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave up, uh, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among his saints." Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible in light, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church 
and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one even hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So that's what it looks like. This is what, now that you are set free, you slave for one another, serving them in love. Fathers, husbands, children, masters, servants, right? Invocation. This is what it means to do a good work. And so the focus of our good works, because here's the deal. We're set free in Christ. We're not saved by what we do, but because we're perfectly free now, declared righteous because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, that all of our sins are forgiven and our right standing before God has been completely secured by Christ alone. Now we are set free to go and slave for our neighbors. I know it sounds contradictory and and oxy, you know, oxymoronic, but it's that it is in a way. But see, that's the point. And so all of our good works are done with the focus of our good works on slaving for and serving. Our neighbors doesn't matter if our neighbor is a pagan, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, doesn't matter. You love and serve them in your vocation. And that's what's missing from Donald Trump's focus as he's talking about the importance of success at Liberty University. Now, let's continue. I, I would always say to people and I'd see people and I'd say, you got to love what you do. Because, you know, if you love what you do, you work harder. But it's not work. I love – I just bought Durrell. I was telling Jerry, I just bought hey, now, Dur- now, this is kind of the point. He's, he's giving several things that you need to do. In order to be successful, you got to do certain things, right? One of the things you got to do is you got to love what you do. Wrong focus. As Christians, in a Christian context, he's t- – again, he's at Liberty University. He – really ought to be teaching what the scriptures teach, and that's this. It's not enough to love what you do. The reason why we do, you know, the reason why we go into business and do these things like this, if if the reason why is because you love what you do, your focus is in the wrong place. It's because you love your neighbor, right? That makes it so that you love what you do because you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for your neighbor, 
loving what you do, if that's the kind of the ends or the means or whatever, you, well, the, the focus is on you, not your neighbor. This is not what it means to slave for neighbor, which is what we as Christians are called to do. There are 800 acres in the middle of Miami, gorgeous. I, I'm so excited. I want to fix it up. It's sort of not so nice now. It's got the big tournaments, got everything, but it was run by Wall Street people. Wall Street people aren't good for fixing things. They're good for moving paper. That's not good. That's not what we want in the country. I want to do sort of a version of what you did here, but I have many, many jobs like that. I love taking things and fixing, taking things and building. I love building. I almost like fixing better because if you're smart, if you're really smart, you can save a lot of money when the building is there the foundations are built the steel is up the walls are up and then you know you have people say renovation costs you more money those are people that aren't smart people i know that for a fact you renovated a couple of buildings here and did very well that you could never ever do if you had to build new if you build new i love that too i, I do it both ways but there's something great about the renovation project so You've got by the way, being a real estate developer in New York is a fantastic way to serve your neighbor because all of us need shelter. We need places to live, right? So th th this is a great way to love and serve your neighbor as a good real estate developer, a property, you know, renovator or whatever. Perfectly legit way to love and serve your neighbor. I find it sad that again, his focus is not on them, but really on him, which is not a good thing you want to be modeling in a Christian setting. You've got to love what you do. You've got to work hard. Never, ever quit. Never, ever give up. Because that's the other thing. I've seen people that are super genius, but they don't have that gut feeling. They don't have that stick to that never quit. And I've seen people that almost made it and failed because they couldn't go that extra mile. They couldn't do it. So you get something, you never, ever quit, never, ever give up. You know, there's another one. I was, I was coming down and I just wrote it and I've very rarely spoken about it. And frankly, I don't like to talk in the negative, but sometimes people are better off knowing the fact. Should I tell you what it is or not? Yes. I had a feeling you were going to say. You know, when people ask me about success, I've just started thinking about it over the last couple of years because I've seen a lot of it. You have to have an ability to handle pressure because you, no matter how successful you are, I have many, many friends and enemies, a lot of enemies too. I don't care, but they're smart. He has friends and enemies. And they're smart. So in order to be successful, you got to handle a lot of pressure. Now, I've seen a lot of people cook on, cooking under that kind of pressure in the corporate world. And um, it's a self-imposed pressure for the most part. Why? Because they're basically doing things that they wouldn't normally do, going to the next level or whatever, in order to climb the ladder and be more successful for themselves. That's where the pressure comes from. I have a lot of enemies, and I've watched people, and I've seen it. And people that can handle pressure can be entrepreneurs, can be successful. Now, I have some friends that are really, really smart, but they can't handle pressure. 
in which case they should work for somebody, do great, and have a good life. There's nothing wrong with it. Because I almost think that's an instinctive thing, the ability to handle pressure. Now, one of the things I tell people about pressure is, you know what? They said, how do you handle pressure? Who's had more pressure than me? Ay, ay, ay. Have I had pressure over the years? And, you know, I mean, I get criticized in my hair, but it's not so bad. And it's real. It's mine. You know it is my real hair. Now, I, I kept this part in because I, I, apparently there's a lot of misinformation being kicked around the world and the news and blogosphere and, uh, regarding Trump's hair. So, you know, I, I put this in so that he, you know, he's able to set the record straight regarding his hair because, I mean, when Trump comes up, his hair comes up. I mean, I get killed. I had an article recently that was so good. It was such a great article. And then he had one line, but he wears the worst hairpiece I've ever seen. I couldn't show the article to anybody, and it's not even true. But you have to have the ability to handle pressure. And if you can't handle pressure, you have to know that about yourself. You have to know that about yourself. So in order to be successful, you got to love what you do. You got to work real hard. You got to be able to handle pressure. And notice, again, the, the, the focus of this type of success that he's describing isn't on loving and serving your neighbor. It's really about success for you. Okay? Next segment. I always finish off by saying two things. But I'm not going to say them to you because you people don't have this problem. One is in business, get even. If somebody hurts you, and I use a much different word in other speeches than I do, but I won't use it. Because Becky said, please don't use bad language, said I missed it. Okay, um, did you hear that? When somebody hurts you, get even. Man, that is the exact opposite of what Christ, Christ's death on the cross is all about. And it's the complete opposite of the way Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Mr. Trump, go back to your catechism. Reread the Lord's Prayer. Here's what it says. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. One is in business, get even. If somebody hurts you, and I use a much different word in other speeches than I do, but I won't use it. Because Becky said, please don't use bad language, said I missed it. So I'm not going to use it. So I'm going to say, should I use it? No, I won't use it. I promised. You know, I did it in front of a rough, rough group of Teamsters in Las Vegas. They were great. And I did it, and I used some really foul language. I got killed by that language because that was broadcast all over the place. But I wouldn't do it. But I always say, don't let people take advantage. This goes for a country, too, by the way. Don't let people take advantage. Get even. And, you know, if nothing else, other people will see that. And they're going to say, you know, I'm going to let Jim Smith or Sarah Malone, I'm going to let them alone because they're tough customers. So I always say it. But I won't say it to you. Because it's a different audience. You don't want to get even, do you? Yeah, I think you do. Okay. The other thing I tell people, because in New York it's like a total catastrophe, it's an epidemic. 
I always say, always have a prenuptial agreement, but I won't say it here because you people don't get divorced, right? Nobody gets divorced. And yet he did say it. Okay, so I will not say, have a prenuptial agreement to anybody in this room. I just want to end. Who else would say that but Trump, right? See, I said, I should say it, but I won't say it. How do I get my point across without saying it? I just did it, right? But to be a winner, and you're all winners, you've got to think like a winner. And you are just thinking like a lot of beautiful winners. And I love you all. Yeah. So that was uh, Donald Trump teaching the college students at Liberty University, which is a Christian university, on how to be champions and winners. Get even. Sign a prenuptial agreement. Success, it's all about you. This is, see, what's missing in all of this? Well, really, Christ. That's what's missing. And a proper understanding that each and every one of us, because... Christ has set us free by his shed blood on the cross. We are now set free to slave for and serve our neighbor. Not a mention about serving your neighbor. In fact, the idea of getting even, that's the exact opposite of what Christ teaches. And it's the complete opposite of, of, you know, of what it means to love and serve your neighbor in your vocation. Fascinating speech. Pray for Brother Trump that Christ is not done with him yet and will continue the work of sanctifying him because he needs to go back to his catechism. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. 
Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. This is an interesting sermon. There's, even though the Bible twisting is like really bad and narcissistic, the pastor does make some decent points regarding um, serving our neighbor. So yeah, you gotta listen with the sermon. Not everything he says is off out of tune here, but let's uh, do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Gateway Church, Austin, Texas. John Burke presiding. The name of the sermon is Dream Maker, What's Stopping You? And um, this is another adventure in missing the point, this time of the story of Moses. And yet, at the same time, John does have, he does make some points regarding serving our neighbors that's in accord with the the general theme of Scripture when it comes to that. But for the most part, this is a pretty bad twisting of the story of Moses. But in fact, uh, let's do this. Let's kill the music. So without any further ado, here's uh, John Burke, Dream Maker, What's Stopping You? only fear. (laughs) Fear is all it takes, though, doesn't it, to just stop us dead in our tracks, even when we have a dream. And so today we're going to talk about what is stopping you. If God has put a dream in your heart, what's stopping you? And we're going to take a look at... Here we go again. If God has put a dream in your heart, what's stopping you? My question is, where in the Bible does it clearly, unambiguously teach as a doctrine that God is going to put a dream in your heart? Answer, it doesn't. A dream, an emancipation dream that God actually gave to Moses. But some of the things that that uh, kind of got in his way a little bit. And we're going to see a kind of a dream map on this journey when we start to pursue our dream. But first, did you do your homework? Remember last week I asked you to begin to reflect and, and pray about... you got to pause here for a second. Dream map? Where does the Bible teach dream mapping? What is a dream that God has put in me? Because we said God created every single one of us with purpose. He had a purpose in mind, a dream in mind. And, and many times that dream is going to meet a real need in the world, and it's going to align with your unique gifts and temperament and passion. And it's probably something that you've had at least a fuzzy sense of, maybe even from a young age. And that's what we see clearly in the story of Moses. He had a sense of this dream from a young age. Now, maybe you're not that familiar. Okay, I'll point something out here. He's not going to actually read the biblical text. He's going to infer from the text that Moses had a sense of the dream that God had for his life. Yet the text doesn't say this. With, uh, with the story of Moses, Gary Larson summarized it well in the Far Side cartoon. Remember that cartoon? Uh, there's this picture of a boy eating breakfast 
uh, and there's this big bowl of cereal in front of him, and, and he's doing like this. Picture my other arm going up. And milk is splitting in two, flying out both sides of the bowl, and it says, Moses is a child. (laughs) And you remember, he was the one who split the Red Sea, right? But there was much more to the story than that. And if you want to read it, you can read about it in in the books of Exodus and Numbers in the Old Testament. But let me give you just a little background if you're not familiar with the story. You know, the, the Hebrews had been enslaved by the Egyptians, and they were multiplying. They were growing so numerous that Pharaoh was starting to fear that they would overthrow the Egyptians. So he came up with his little birth control plan called Kill All the Newborn Male Babies. And Moses was one of those that was supposed to be killed, but as you recall, maybe Pharaoh's daughter rescued him, and Moses, as a result, grows up in Pharaoh's house. He has the best leadership training in the world at that time, is actually training to maybe even one day become Pharaoh himself. And yet, from an early age, it appears that Moses had this vague dream that he was supposed to lead people out of bondage and into freedom. You're putting that in the narrative. The narrative doesn't say that. And we see this because it says in the text that Moses kept going to check on the Hebrew slaves. There was something drawing Moses, something... Yeah, he knew that he wasn't an Egyptian. He saw the slavery and oppression that they were under. Stirring in him when he saw the plight of of the Hebrews. And this might give you a clue as well uh, as you're seeking to discover your dream. Because this is the first thing... So now we're taking this story of God's literally mighty hand of redemption, setting them free from captivity and slavery to the Egyptians, which, by the way, becomes the big type and shadow of our being redeemed and set free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. That you want to see the picture of that, you look at the Exodus. We're gonna just we're gonna miss all of the major themes and we're gonna now eisegete into this text see you know see look at moses had some sense that he was destined for something big and this should give you some clue that maybe god has some big dream for you too Oy, talk about missing the point on the dream journey we have to discover our dream and this can take time by the way you know there are no microwavable dreams no dreams on demand you know, and that's what we want in our culture. We want everything to happen fast. But it, it often takes time to discover what is that God-given dream in me. But one clue is you'll start to have what a, a friend of mine, Bill Hybels, calls a holy discontent about some situation or some need in the world. Okay, by the way, okay, this is Bill Hybels' concept, the holy discontent. Now, I'm going to basically say, listen, the Bible doesn't teach this. But I want to basically not totally knock the idea because here's the deal. If you're in your scripture and you're reading your Bible and you're reading the passage that talk about loving and serving neighbors or in Galatians 5.13 about how we're set free to now slave for our neighbors, that you know we as Christians are attuned because of, we are regenerated. We are new creatures in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit working in us. We are a little bit more attuned to the needs of people outside of ourselves. And so when we see the poor, when we see injustice, when we see that, our, that there's a way in which we can serve our neighbors with our particular skills, 
there's an, uh, an inclination to get to work and get busy and slave for our neighbors. So what Hybels is describing here, I think, is more along the lines of what, uh, because we are new creations in Christ, and that we, our focus is outside of ourselves, we're looking for ways to love and serve our neighbor in vocation in different ways. So he calls it holy discontent, and I, it may it may be that, but he's describing the—he, he at this point, is uh, John Burke is describing— the feeling itself, and notice the complete subjectivity of this whole thing. Whereas, objectively, all we got to do is look in our Bible and and see what God has laid out for us and how we can love and all the different ways we can serve our neighbors. And it it, it doesn't take any guesswork. You know, when you see our, your neighbor in need, get going. You are set free to slave for them. Go and love and serve your neighbor. You know, uh, this is what... Uh, launched the the CEO of Starbucks to start Starbucks. He watched his father, who worked a blue-collar, minimum-wage job um, his whole life, but was faithful to it, then have an accident, a job-related accident, and it completely wiped him out, completely devastated him. And and as a result, the CEO uh, of Starbucks... You know, because back back then in the in the 60s, the low wage earners had no workers comp, no health insurance, nothing like that. You know, and so it wiped his family out. And so he had a dream actually to build a company that men like his father would be proud to work for, would want to be a part of, and would would have a sense of ownership in. And so that was the dream driving Starbucks. The dream driving Starbucks was not actually to create industrial strength coffee to addict all of America. That was just a byproduct. The dream driving Starbucks was to provide low-income workers with dignity and ownership. And that's why Starbucks, by the way, is one of the few uh, companies that offers every employee um, health benefits and stock options. So what is it that stirs a holy discontent in you? You know, maybe it's seeing the plight of the poor. Or maybe it's seeing kids who are struggling, maybe struggling uh, from self-worth, coming from broken homes. Or maybe maybe it's uh, something that makes you go crazy inside, like a woman who came up to me last week and said, you know, if, someone doesn't, if a kid doesn't learn to read by third grade, the, the chances of that kid dropping out of high school and getting into drugs or getting pregnant is exponential. And, and it's causing her to go crazy. She wants to do something about it. Maybe it's wanting to provide health care holistically or provide health care for those who, who can't get it. Or maybe it's wanting to lead a team of people to discover their dream so that the impact can multiply. In fact, if, if that is part of what you sense maybe God's doing in you, you have a leadership gift and you want to help others discover their dream, we have a special opportunity for you. It's in your program. Okay. <laughs> this is crazy. So on the one hand, I'm, th- I'm going. This is not. This is not a, a biblical sermon. And on the other hand, it's clear that the uh, the focus is, well, right on loving and serving your neighbor. So, hmm, interesting. There's going to be a 12 week course uh, on soul storming that will train you to not only discover uh, soul storming. <laughs> What's that? Discover what that dream is that may be stirring in you, but how to equip others to do that as well. You might check that out. But the question you need to ask is, what is it in me that, that makes me say, you know, someone needs to do something about this. I, I can't stand not doing something about this. It's kind of like that old uh, cartoon, Popeye, the sailor man. 
Remember that? That was a classic, wasn't it? Some of you don't even know. You know, Cartoon Network, old, old cartoons. Popeye the Sailor Man. You remember Popeye had a girlfriend named Olive Oil, spelled O-Y-L, right? And she was a looker. She was hot, right? She made men whistle, dogs bark, you know, the works. I think more dogs bark, but Popeye loved her. And whenever there was anything threatening olive oil, remember what would happen? Popeye's temperature would go up and his heart would start to beat until finally he said that famous line, it's all I can stands, I can't stands no more, right? Remember that? And then what what would he do? He would open a can of, yeah, some of you said something. No, it's not that. It's spinach, right? Open a can of spinach. And that would give him strength to act. Okay, just a reminder, Popeye is not found in the Bible. The job of the pastor is to preach the word. So this is just ugh, bad narcissistic eisegesis, twisting and missing of the point of uh, the story of Moses and yet, at the same time, a right focus outward toward loving and serving your neighbor. Weird. Now, this can be a clue to your dream. What is it that stirs in you that makes you say, someone needs to do something? I, I can't stand not doing something about this. That might be a clue to the dream God's put in you. So here's Moses, Moses living in this pot. No, God doesn't... Ah! The dream God has put in you. <laughs> the Bible doesn't teach this. Luxurious, you know, kingly environment. And yet it says he keeps leaving comfort to go check out the plight of the Hebrews. He keeps crossing the tracks to the slave side. Now notice he's not actually reading this story from the Bible. He's summarizing it and taking um, literary license with it to fill in details that are not there. Omit details that are not relevant to the point that he's trying to make. And this is something you need to do as well, is that if you sense something stirring in you, a holy discontent, leave your comfort and keep exposing yourself to that need. And if it's from God, that I can't stands no more is going to grow in you. You're going to want to do Got a Bible verse that says this. Do something about it. So Moses is observing the plight of the Hebrews when one day he sees an Egyptian mercilessly beat a Hebrew slave. And that dream rises up within him. He wants... Uh, no, it's wrong. Okay. okay, no, no, no. You don't get to sit there and say, okay, Moses sees somebody, you know, a Hebrew slave being bitten by, uh, beaten by an Egyptian and the dream that God placed on his heart rises within him so that the dream that God put in his heart causes him to commit... The sin of murder. Yeah, you don't get to do that. The text doesn't say anything about the dream there. There was no... Ah! He wants justice. He wants liberation. But it's not yet God's timing. And the truth is Moses didn't really know God and he didn't really know himself yet. And here's where we got to understand. Like, I'm sure Moses struggled with identity issues. You know, you think about it. Everyone knew he wasn't. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm so gonna go crazy here. Really, M Moses struggled with identity issues. So now we're gonna just do a pop psych eval on Moses. Yeah. Well, apparently he suffered from identity issues. Kind <laughs> of find a brick wall and start beating my head against it smartly. Egyptian. It was obvious, and I'm sure he knew too. So the question was probably 
you know, stirring around, well, who are his real parents? You know, I'm sure he was wondering, yeah, who are my real parents and why they abandoned me and where do I really belong? And what we start to see is these identity crisis issues fueled anger issues in Moses' life. And he would struggle with that most of his life. Really, what passage says that Moses struggled with anger issues most of his life? <laughs> gonna... <laughs> Though he grew through it. But in this case, his, his anger obscures his judgment and he kills the Egyptian soldier. And this can happen. You know, when we don't really know God and we get impatient with God on the path to our dream, and we try to do the dream our way and our time, people can... When we get impatient with on the path to our dream, <laughs> I feel <laughs> I'm going to lose it. ...and get hurt. But as we seek the dream maker, as we seek his will, even the timing becomes clearer. Back scripture gives us promise in Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. But be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret when people succeed in their ways. You know, this is saying one of the ways you can discover your God-given dream is you, you delight. You, you... Uh, the text that you just read doesn't mention a word about your God-given dream. Doesn't mention it at all. Seek God and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, this doesn't mean... You, you sing songs and clap and you say, oh, I delight in you, God, you're such an awesome dude. Now, where's my Maserati, right? You know, that's not what it means that he'll give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't mean whatever we want, he'll give us. It means as you seek God, as you find more and more delight loving God and seeking him, you can start to trust your own heart. Because your own heart is going to be What's going to be rising up are those desires that he placed in you from long ago to do that God-given dream. But we have to... We have to and again, not a single passage of Scripture says any of this. He's just making stuff up and calling it Christian doctrine. <sighs> to be careful because all of us have false identity dreams. You know, dreams that get warped by wounds or our need to, you know, have people notice or value or, or respect us. But these false identity dreams will never fulfill you. And they'll lead you astray from the real dream you were meant to accomplish. So a good question to ask about your dream is this. If I pursue this dream and it meets a good need in the world, but no one really notices except God and maybe a few people. You know, if daddy who hurt you never notices... Or, or if those bullies in your head don't ever finally bow down and take it back. Or if you're never famous, is that okay? And if you can say, yes, it's a good sign. This is a right dream. This is a God-given dream. So Moses has this emancipation dream, and it is from God. But he, the, the timing is wrong, and his woundedness and his identity issues get in the way. He kills this Egyptian slave, and he has to flee out of Egypt. His woundedness and identity issues get in the way of the dream that God placed. The text doesn't say this at all. 
How can you, with a straight face, say this is a biblical teaching? He flees out into the wilderness where he becomes a shepherd for the next 40 years. I mean, you think about this. After years and years of the best leadership training the world knows that really did prepare him for the dream, God sends him out for 40 years of shepherding. 40 years to get his issues worked through. Nothing like 40 years of sheep therapy to get the grandiosity out of you. (laughs) Sheep will, will deal with your impatient anger. And here's something to notice. You know, God's timing is not always our timing. And it might throw a wet blanket on your excited fires that by the end of this series, you're going to have your dream figured out. And by next year, it will be well on your way. And in five years on the cover of Time magazine, because that's where we naturally go. But sometimes God takes us a different direction for a reason. The timing is different for everyone, but the key is to be faithful wherever you are. You know, God led Moses out to this area because Jethro was there and Jethro was a spiritual leader that Moses ended up living with and marrying his daughter. But he needed to learn from Jethro about who God was and about who Moses was. And often the bigger the dream, the longer the preparation as well. (laughs) I am going to lose it again. I mean, the, the, the bigger the dream, the longer the preparation. There's no text in Exodus that says anything about this. He's literally just making stuff up and foisting it on the uh, Exodus story. So how do you think God is wanting to prepare you? Where is he leading you now that might feel uncomfortable because maybe he's tearing down props that have propped up your false ID security? What are the wounds you think maybe God wants to heal That, you know, they're creating bad fuel that motivates you, yes, but will also destroy you in time. Can you be faithful where God leads you? Can you be faithful so he can use you wherever you are? You know, Betsy Lawson, who leads our serve team, talks about how she came to faith in Christ because of a woman who was faithful in this um, support role. This woman worked for for Betsy at the time, and Betsy said she made beautiful spreadsheets. You know, she just went to this incredible detail in her in her spreadsheets. And um, you know, uh, Betsy at the time had no interest in God, but she was perplexed by by this woman's meticulous, passionate spreadsheets. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. Here, the story. This is not a biblical story. Okay, but pay attention to something here. Let's assume for a moment that the woman that is that is being to- the story is being told about um, the spreadsheet woman that this is a Christian who understands vocation. Okay, you know. And by the way, because the you know the Ephesians passage I just read, where it talks about slaves obeying your masters, not as you know, you know not as people pleasers, but ple- you know, you know, because God's watching that kind of thing. Listen to this. So this lady is going to be describing, or the man is going to be describing a a woman who sounds like a Christian who understands her proper role in vocation. And so uh, one day Betsy asked for a spreadsheet overnight, and she said, look, don't, don't spend a lot of time making it beautiful and all that. Just give me the data. 
Well, the next morning, the woman presented the spreadsheet to her. And again, it's meticulous and beautiful. And Betsy was a little perturbed. She's like, you probably stayed up all night. Why did you do this? I just wanted you to do the data. And the woman said, I'm not making these beautiful for you. I'm making them beautiful for God. And there was something about that that caught Betsy's attention. Betsy says, now I was basically led to faith in Christ by beautiful spreadsheets. (laughs) But can you be faithful wherever you are? You know, read the story of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was, the dream was that he was going to one day be ruling many people, but he ended up as a slave. And he was faithful as a slave. Then he ended up unjustly in prison, but he was faithful in prison. And finally the dream happened. And so Moses is faithful as well, going from a somebody in Egypt to a nobody shepherd. But he stays faithful. And finally, one day, God speaks from the burning bush, right? And basically says, it's time, Moses, to step out in faith and do the dream I put in you long ago. That is not what is said in Exodus chapter 3. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 3 just to prove this, okay? God nowhere says, okay, Moses, now is the time for that dream that I've placed in your heart, okay? Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said to him, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, he saw that he turned aside to see, uh, God called to him out of the bush, Moses. Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals off your feet for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a land, a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. Who has the dream? God does, not Moses. Okay? I have seen their oppression in which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to him, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Nowhere here does God mention that he had laid a dream on Moses' heart. Nowhere. Moses doesn't respond like, oh, finally, Lord, the dream that you put on my heart. Nope. No response at all like that at all. Okay? None. Remember, at this point, uh, Moses is on Egypt's most wanted list. Okay, he's on Egypt's most wanted list because he's a murderer. There's no big dream burning in his heart. It's nowhere mentioned in any of the text of Exodus. And if it was there, then wouldn't we expect that Moses would go, finally the dream. No, it doesn't say that. He says, no, God, send somebody else. 
That's what's really going on here. He's not preaching this text. If he were preaching the text, he would actually be reading it and preaching it, but he's not. He's summarizing it, and he's inserting data that isn't there and omitting data that doesn't make the point that he's trying to make, and none of this has anything to do with dreams or God the dream maker at all. Go tell Pharaoh, set the Hebrew slaves free. Now, you would think Moses would be really excited, right? Like, Yahoo, God spoke to me. I'm, I'm going to be a somebody again. That's not his reaction. You know what his reaction was? Horrible fear. Horrible fear. And this is the next stop, usually, on the dream map journey. You've got to face down fear with faith. Because when you start to discover your dream and when it's finally time to do something about it, you will face a wall of fear. Even if... Oh, good night. Again, passages that teach this, please. Because this Moses passage doesn't say that. God Almighty speaks and does special effects with it. You'll still face fear. And many times we misunderstand. We think, well, if this dream is from God, then God would take away the fear. And I have fear, so it must not be from God. No. No, God never promises to take away fear. The fear doesn't come from him. But what he promises is if you will trust him and move through the fear trusting him, he'll get you through it. Because when there's no fear, there's no need for faith. So Moses Fears all kinds of things. You can read about it in, in Exodus chapter 4, and he makes all kinds of excuses. And this is when there's no fear, there's no need for faith. Where are you getting any of this? This is what we always do when we fear. We make excuses. Well, I did have a dream, but I can't now. I got this job. I got this family. Or I can't. I have all this debt to pay. And, oh, it's impossible. People love excuses. Sometimes excuses are downright hilarious, too. I found some real excuses sent by parents to the teachers of their kids. Look at a couple of these. Please excuse Jennifer for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch. And when we found it on Monday, we thought it was Sunday. (laughs) Clue phone. Look at this one. Please excuse Ray Friday from school. He has very loose vowels. That won't work in English class. Loose vowels. Please excuse Jimmy for being. It was his father's fault. (laughs) And Moses, too, comes up with lots of excuses. You know, when he's faced with the fear of, of having to face up to Pharaoh, knowing he's a fugitive, even when God says, you know, here's the dream, go for it, Moses is, says, who am I to do this? In other words, I'm not worthy. And, and maybe that's your fear as well, to which God replies, you're right. You're not worthy. But the good news is, it's not about you. And it doesn't all depend on you either. Look at how he answers Moses. God said, I will be with you. And you know, you got to remember this. If, if this is a dream from God to meet a good need in the world and he's prompting you to step out in faith, he will be with you too. You know, First John 4 talks about how God's perfect love casts out all fear. Why? Well, because love has to do with focusing on God and others. Fear focuses on me. How do I maintain my security, my comfort? How do I keep from failing? But you know what's great about the message of God offered through Christ? Is that God has done everything necessary to pay for all your sins, all your wrongs, all your failures, so that you can know your right 
with the universe. You're right with the... A little bit of a gospel nugget here. Okay, not bad. But it doesn't make up for all the Bible-twisting and narcissistic eisegesis you're doing with the Moses story. The creator of the universe, so everything's okay. Therefore, you can have the security even to risk and fail. Because ultimately, it's going to be okay. So don't focus on the fear. Focus on God's love and loving others. And let that be the motivation for stepping out in faith. All right, well, Moses makes another excuse. He says, but I don't have what it takes. You know, you're telling me to go speak to Pharaoh, but I have a fear of public speaking. I'm not good with words, Moses complains. Now, I've been out talking to sheep for 40 years. You know, I, I, I start to speak, but all that comes out is bah. So the Lord says to him, Exodus 4, who gave human beings their mouths? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak. Another important thing to understand is that God often uses our gifts and our training from the past, just like he did Moses' leadership training from the past. But he will often choose the avenue to move us forward through our weakness or our feelings of inadequacy. And here's why. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In other words, God can show the power of his love rather than just our strength when he works through our inadequacies, our weaknesses. I've been reading a book uh, about Mother Teresa, and man, what a great example of this. I mean, it makes no sense that this little frail, weak Albanian woman who really had no special gifts or, or talents, no power, no money... How did she influence presidents and whole countries and, and the entire world? I mean, the world knows her name. Well, it's because God gave her a dream. And she used to say, I'm just a pencil in the hand of Jesus. He's writing his story of compassion through me. And know this, God will often take those areas where you feel inadequate or unworthy or weak so that he can show his strength and the power of his love as you trust him. But eventually you got to step out in faith. And faith is risky. Faith is scary. And the truth is you'll probably have to sacrifice something. You know, many of us make excuses because we say, well, it's impossible now. But the truth is we've just sold our dream out to, you know, Lots of debt, and, and we don't know how to get out of it. Or maybe it's some situation where we just feel like it's an impossible situation. But it's impossible if only you are in the equation. But what if God's in the equation? You know, then all things are possible. So maybe you ought to start praying, God, if this is from you, I'll take a step forward in faith, and you show me a creative way to, to see the impossible happen. And take a step forward and see what happens. That's what happens with Moses. You know, Pharaoh didn't just say, oh, let all my economic security go. Let my free national labor force go. Sure, Moses, why didn't you just ask? What were you afraid of? No, no, he wanted to kill Moses. There was incredible resistance. But as Moses stepped forward in faith, God showed a way that he had never thought of. And so finally, the Israelites go free. They leave Egypt. And here's the thing, when you, when you step out in faith, 
when you start to trust and, and have you noticed he just like glossed over the whole 10 plagues God found a way that Moses hadn't thought of. Yeah, the 10 plagues, the killing of the firstborn, all of that stuff. You, you are aware that the whole Exodus is a showdown between a false god, Pharaoh, and the real god, Yahweh. I mean, who brought the plagues? Did Moses do it? No, God did. Unbelievable. Move forward. You'll start to taste the dream come alive. You'll, you'll start to see God's hand at work in your life. Maybe for the first time, you'll feel a zest, a zeal for living like you've never experienced before. Maybe for several years. And then you'll hit the desert. (laughs) And no one is ever ready for the desert. But this is the next stop along the way. And you can't turn back in the desert. The desert comes to... So the desert apparently is, you know, Moses went through the desert because that's the desert phase of the whole dream maker thing. Yeah, if you would just dream map, you'd realize that there's like a desert. I wonder if they have a fire swamp too, you know, with rodents of unusual size and things like that. Every dreamer, and you know what? It always surprises us. We're always taken off guard. Now, it's an interesting thing that God says to, to Moses when the Israelites set out to leave Egypt and go across the Sinai Peninsula, which is a, a, a horrendous desert. But there's a road running through it that goes right to the promised land of Canaan. But look what God says. Exodus 13, 17. God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though it was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and turn back to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Sometimes God takes you on a roundabout way toward your dream. And and this is always confusing for us. When when God winds us through the death... Where did you go to seminary? DeVry? Is that where you got your seminary degree from? From DeVry? Because that pretty much would explain everything. And it feels like we're just wasting time, or we're wandering, or we're, we're getting tested, and, and it, it's hurtful, it's frustrating... And maybe you feel like God has just forgotten about you and abandoned you. But you need to remember this. There's a reason for it. And the temptation, you know, when the Hebrews got tested, is they kept wanting to go back to Egypt. You go, huh? Why would anybody go back to abusive slavery? Because they already knew it. And they didn't know what was ahead. And sometimes... No, because they didn't believe God. They didn't believe in him. They didn't have faith in him. They still hated him. Sometimes we will turn back to abusive patterns on ourselves. We'll turn back to old ways or habits that were destroying us or the people around us, even old addictions when we're faced with a test because it's what we already know. And we'd rather face that than the unknown of trusting God through a testing time. But it's a test that's important to pass if we're going to really accomplish the dream. See, the Hebrew slaves could not experience true freedom just by changing locations from Egypt to uh, Canaan. God knew they weren't ready for the challenges that were going to be required to truly uh, possess the dream. They still thought of themselves as slaves. They had the wrong identity. And the truth is God knew he couldn't get the Israelites out of slavery till he got slavery out of the Israelites. You do realize the only reason why he's able to get away with any of this is because he's not actually reading any of the biblical texts. 
He's not exegeting. He's just making stuff up and throwing Moses and God into it and basically attributing all kinds of bizarre things to them that the text nowhere says nor implies. Narcissistic, eisegetical nonsense is what this is. And that required some testing. And the same goes for us. In the desert, God's testing us. Will we learn to trust God so that we'll learn more about who God is and what he says is true about us? Or will we turn back to those old ways, old shortcuts, old escapist patterns, old unethical or immoral behaviors? I remember talking to a woman who got baptized here at Gateway. And um, before she came here, she was involved uh, making a living uh, in a way, let's just say, was definitely not God's will. Someone in her, in her apartment complex invited her to Gateway, and she started coming, and she started to actually realize that God really did love her, just as she was, even in all the mess in her life. And she came to faith in Christ and got baptized, got into a small group and started to grow and moved out uh, of that old way of making a living. And a new dream started to emerge that was actually an old dream. She loved and wanted to protect and care for the environment. She wanted to steward God's creation well. So she decides to go back to college to get her degree in environmental studies. And as she starts to do this, um, she was having to work two jobs, and it was making it harder to study, and there came the temptation. Because if she would just go back to her old way of making money, she could make twice the money in half the time and have a lot more time to study. And I talked to her right about this time, and I asked her, do you think the dream of pursuing environmental studies is from God? She said, definitely. I said, then I think this is a test. Will you trust God to provide a way for you through school without having to turn back and go against his will? And these are the tests that when we pass them, our, our, our trust in God grows stronger, but something grows stronger in us so that we can actually become free inside because then we can actually be fulfilled with the dream. Well, the truth is, um, the Israelites didn't pass all the tests. Um, not even Moses passed all the tests. Some of them failed again and again. But the important part is to learn from them. See, the tests are not given to punish us or because we've done something wrong. But here's the deal. When we keep turning from God and going back to the old ways, it can definitely lengthen the time in the desert. And that is definitely a, a theme in the story of the Exodus. This is unbelievable. I mean, that he is doing this to this text, to this story, is unbelievable. It's, this is like a, a crime that is taking place before our very ears. That the Exodus story is not a blueprint for a dream that God's placed in your heart. It, it, it notice all the law. You know, if you don't pass all the tests, well, it's going to definitely lengthen your time in the desert Ugh! of Israel. Because see, God's trying to do something in us, which means we've got to cooperate in order for that thing to grow stronger within us. Biblical texts that say this please you won't be able to produce one and god knows our tendency is that if if we don't grow up on the inside when we actually reach 
our, our dream and he blesses us. And, you know, we've got all these accomplishments or all these cars and houses and blessings and money. Here's what he said to the Israelites. When I bless you like that, your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And isn't that what happens so often? You know, he led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness. He brought water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness to humble and test you, get this, so that in the end it might go well with you. That's why. So that in the end it might be good for you. It might go well with you. You've got to hold on to that when you're in the desert being tested. God's not trying to harm you or punish you. He's trying to prepare you so that in the end, it will go well with you. Well, then somewhere along the journey, you're going to have the opportunity to accept an invitation from God. But it comes usually in the form of an invitation to let go and let God be God in a whole new way. You know, people usually emerge from the desert, from the the times of, of testing, and they're emotionally and spiritually depleted. Our relationship with God has been tested, and maybe even some damage has been done. And what our spirits desperately need on the backside of the desert is comfort and restoration and renewal. And often God will give us an invitation on the backside of the desert testing. This is not an obstacle or a test. This is an invitation into deeper intimacy with God, deeper than we've ever known. So unlike the other stages of the journey, this is more like an oasis. It's a time when you're invited to to meet with God and be renewed in your soul and make some decisions, decisions that will radically affect the rest of your journey and the outcome of your dream. For Moses and the Israelites, you know, after years of wandering in the desert, they come to the Jordan River. They're about to cross over into the promised land. They're about to take hold of the dream. But first, Moses leads them in kind of a spiritual retreat. It's a time of spiritual renewal. Moses reminds them of the lessons learned through the testing in the desert. He reminds them of their identity given by God, not by Egypt. And then he reminds them of the Ten Commandments and God's covenant of love with them. And then there's a time of recommitment, you know, recommitment to to pursue deeper love for God. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 30. I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land of your dreams. They're about to possess their dream. Now, here's the problem when we're about to possess the dream. Is that we've been pursuing it for so long and we've given so much to it that, that over time we start to hold it with a white knuckle fist. And in fact, what we end up doing is, is we bank on the dream to give us life. We make the dream into a God. The problem is no matter how big a dream is, it makes a tiny God that will let you down every time. And so somewhere along the way, and maybe several times, God gives you an invitation. He asks, will you let go of the dream and let me be God, even of your dream, and and enter into deeper relationship with me, trusting me even with this dream? And here's why he asked that. Because like Moses said, The Lord is your life. 
Now, the truth is we don't believe this or live this way most of the time. But it's just a fact that if the Creator really did create you, then everything you and I have comes from God, ultimately. Our whole lives, every ability that you have, every pleasure you've ever experienced, every good gift, every bit of love, every big dream, ultimately comes from your Creator. And that's why He wants you to give it back to Him, because the only dreams that last are the ones that we entrust to His safekeeping. So God asks, will you choose me or the dream? And it's an invitation. You don't have to choose him. You can keep on trying to do your dream on your own, but you will short sell what God wanted to do through you. But when we hand the dream back to him, when we let it go, when we have that full surrender, God does something in us that's even better than what the dream alone could give us. He's not doing it to take the dream away, but so that the dream can actually be fulfilled. Just a reminder, nowhere in the scripture does God promise to lay a dream on your heart. None of this is a biblical teaching. This is all just assertion after assertion after assertion. None of it taught in God's word. Despite the fact he tried to make it appear like a biblical teaching. That's why I asked if he went to seminary at DeVry. Billing. You know, I'll never forget when we started Gateway, um, you know, I, I, had, I had put everything on the line for this crazy dream of a church that, that unchurched people here in Austin who, you know, struggled with questions or doubts about God or felt like church wasn't really a safe place to be honest about what they were dealing with, you know, that, that, that people would find a place where they could wrestle with questions of faith and come to faith and then walk together in authenticity. And, you know, when we started the church, we started to see God do things and that was happening, you know, in spades. And then we went through a desert time of wandering, literally. You know, the first two years we were kicked out of six different locations. So they went into a desert. Really? Wow. Who knew? Location to location. And during that time, you know, it was humbling and breaking me. And, and in it, you know, I kept going out and asking God, what am I doing wrong? Just show me, you know, you could give us a facility. Why are you, why are you against us? And I wrestled with this for like a year and then instead of answering my question, I got a question that kept forming in my mind, am I enough? And I, and I wrestled with it for about six months before I realized the question was, I think God given me an invitation to say, I want you to let go of the dream because you've made it your God. And the way I knew that is whenever things didn't go according to my will, I would get angry at God. See, I, wasn't, I wanted to be God. I didn't want him to be God. I wanted him to do my will. And But as I let it go, which took me about another six months, I found something happening inside of me that was amazing, a, a joy and, and a peace and an ability to love, you know, my, my family and enjoy them and just be faithful today and then tomorrow and the next day. And then, you know, not long after that, I had my own burning bush moment where literally I went out the, behind our house, there was a brush fire that I was helping put out. Ended up talking to a guy who said his company had just bought this synagogue that Michael Dell was a part of over on Mopac and 45th. They were going to tear it down the next month. Miraculously, their board decided to lease it to us at one-fifth market rate. And for the next five years, we literally saw thousands of people, you know, see the dream happen of coming and finding faith. 
And God will offer you an invitation somewhere along the way in the journey toward your dream to let it go and enter into an even deeper place with him so that you can see even greater things happen through you. And when that happens, be grateful and humble with the success. Numbers 12. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. See, what God is wanting to do is not just something through you, through me, but something in us. And what he's doing in us to God is more important even than what he'll do through us. Oy. Boy, was that bad. <laughs> Folks, if your pastor isn't actually opening the biblical texts and reading them in a way that you can follow along and exegeting these passages, then more than likely he's up to this kind of monkey business that you know, this Burke character was up to. Nowhere in the Bible does the story of Moses give you a map for dream-making or God placing a dream on your heart. It's not the point. The whole point of that is God's miraculous, strong, and mighty action to save and redeem his people from slavery. And that is a picture. That's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, taking the wrath of God in our place, dying on the cross for our sins to set us free and to redeem us from slavery to sin, death, and the devil, that we may someday enter the real promised land, and that's the kingdom of God itself. Mm. What a mess. What a mess. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.